Hi, I'm Victor Miller. I wrote Friday the 13th, and you're listening to Genretainment. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Genretainment over here at SciFiPulseRadio.com. We're your hosts, Marks. And Julie. And Genretainment is where we talk about what's happening in the world of film, TV, and web series. We give you interviews with writers, directors, producers, and actors in both independent and not-so-independent creations. And for today's show, we chat with author Sarah Beach about her new book, Creating Graphic Novels, Adapting and Marketing Stories for a Multi-Million Dollar Industry. She tells us about the book, why she wrote it, gives us some tips, and we even talk a little bit about Jeopardy, of all things. Yeah. <laughs> you have to listen to find out why. Now, uh, we also have some bonus audio after the interview. I was on a panel at Boston Comic Con recently talking about creating web series and my new book, Television on the Wild Wild Web. Now, while there, I couldn't help but take pictures of cosplayers and do some quick mini-interviews of creators at their booths. So please stay tuned after the featured interview to hear some of that. Now, before we get started with the interview, we do want to mention that the music you just heard at the beginning of the show was a snippet from the theme song for our web series, Reality on Demand. It's a song composed and performed by our friend T. Sean Hardy. And you can find our web series at realityondemandseries.com. And now our interview with writer Sarah Beach. Thank you for having me. Well, before we start talking about your new book, which is Creating Graphic Novels, Adapting and Marketing Stories for a Multi-Million Dollar Industry, we do want to go backwards in time just a little bit. So can you tell us a little bit about how you first got involved in writing and graphic novels? I feel like we should have that harp music leading into Now we go back in time. (laughs) Can you please tell us how you first got involved in writing and graphic novels? Well, writing generally is something I've been doing since... uh, about ninth grade, but um, getting into writing comic scripts and graphic novel material is more the last decade or so. Um, I got back into reading comics and got to know a lot of the professionals in the business and got intrigued by the form itself. Um, The book itself came about because I have a number of a lot of screenwriting friends who are also going, oh, maybe I should adopt my script as a graphic novel, but they don't know anything about the comics business. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> so they're going, oh, I can just hire an artist out of art school and give them the script and maybe some screen caps, and that'll be fine, won't it? Mm-hmm. I'm going, no, no, <laughs> it will not be fine. <laughs> so that's where the book started. Yeah, I was a little surprised at first that Michael Weezy Publishing was making a book on graphic novels because usually it's all about film. But but you do explain oh, yeah. in there that it connection. I, in, yeah, I actually had to convince them that this would actually be a very good crossover book for them because so many screenwriters are going into meetings and getting the oh, I wish there was a graphic novel so I could see what it would look like. <laughs> and you know, so many screenwriters are looking for that, but they don't. They don't know how to get the foot in. They don't know how to find the artist. They don't know how to get it in print, you know, those problems. And then there's the other side of a lot of the aspiring comic book writers. There aren't many books on story structure other than books on screenwriting. And so they know Michael Weesey catalog really pretty well. You know, everybody's got a copy of Save the Cat or The Writer's Journey or um, Linda Sager's books. 
they know those books. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's a good crossover title for them, I think. And once Ken saw the material, he he really got excited by it. Yeah. Good. Yeah, I think being a, the editor. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a good fit, a good uh, good expansion for um, the line and such. Um, So one thing I do want to talk a little bit about in your background, because it's in the book, a little unique for many of our previous guests, is that you used to work on on Jeopardy. Yes. Do people sing you that song all the time when they find that out? (laughs) (laughs) And start Uh, asking you questions and then singing it to you? (laughs) Yes, they do. I uh, When I was still on staff, I used to tell my friends, um, that if they hummed it to me when, during our taping season, I would kill them. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone thinks they're being so original when they do it, I'm sure. Like, I'm the first person to ever do this. Do, do, do. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yeah, it, you know, my position was actually as researcher, so my job was to verify the accuracy of materials. And uh, it was a great place to be when you're a writer that's not making a living as a writer. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. How does how does that process work? Do people just like do you get assigned? You this this group of people takes literature questions. This group takes history. This or is it just everyone go out well, and find random facts? Everybody goes out and and comes up with categories. And actually, all of the writers are expected to do all types of material. Um, and then once the writers have come up with a bunch of questions for a category, the head writer sorts through them and says, these will go into this particular category. And once the head writer approves the material, then the researchers verify everything. We have to double-check sources and find second independent sources that confirm things. I mean, even things like Paris is the capital of France. <laughs> because after all, countries do occasionally change which city is their capital. Occasionally, yes. I, that sounds harder than like writing for those, you know, like night shows and stuff. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's pretty detailed. It is very detailed. You have to learn how to read things quickly and understand what's being said and go, is the source question material that I'm looking at accurate by this other information? Do do we have all of our facts in place? Are there any alternate answers? Oh, yeah. It's a lot of pressure because, you know, there's tons of diehard Jeopardy fans out there. Oh, that... they are just waiting for someone yeah. to make a mistake. <laughs> oh, definitely. I Especially mean, with uh, the internet. <laughs> when, I was, when I was on staff, um, you know, we're on LA time and 3 o'clock in the afternoon, we would start getting calls from the East Coast because Jeopardy is at 7 in New York mm-hmm. going, there was an error on tonight's episode. You've got to tell Alex that it was wrong. Uh-huh. We, we taped that a month ago. <laughs> so, no, we can't get an on-air correction. And actually, you heard the question wrong. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> I was say, if ever yeah, there were I mean, going to be a bunch of fans that are know-it-alls, it would be fans of Jeopardy. In the office, there's a database with all of the material, you know, so we can, so the staffers can very quickly call up the specific clue and, and go, this is what the clue actually said, here is the answer, and what you heard is Alex's commentary. 
which we have no control over. Oh, all right. Uh. So how did you originally get involved with Jeopardy? Um, I was looking for a job in show business, and there was a blind advertisement for researcher for game show and resume <laughs> cover letter to P.O. box. And it wasn't until they called people in to actually take the contestant test for this that I found out it was Jeopardy. Oh, wow. And it was kind of interesting because they had us all come in on a Saturday, and there were like 60 people. And one guy was sitting there and going, are these all the people that answered the ad? And I'm thinking, no, these are the people they called in. Yeah. <laughs> because after all, you want your staffers to be at least as smart as your contestants. <laughs> <laughs> That's really neat. All right, well, so back to your book. Uh, I don't know. I'm kind of enjoying the Jeopardy now. <laughs> are you, you? You need to write a book about how to write for you game should, shows. Yeah, write a, write a book about <laughs> writing for your Jeopardy. That's something no one ever really thinks about. There's a lot of game shows. Hmm. Now, about graphic novels, creating graphic novels. Uh-huh. What experiences have you had so far with graphic novels? Um. Well, aside from reading a lot and knowing professionals, both the artists and the writers, and talking with them about their process. Um, I have actually edited a comic book anthology or two Mm -hmm. and written a couple of short stories myself. Uh, Getting your foot in the door on the larger projects is just like working in Hollywood. It's a lot of work, and you got to keep being persistent. Um, But it's an interesting format, an interesting medium to write for. So... And we'll keep trying that along with everything else. (laughs) (laughs) You know, graphic novels, comic books, and and movies and TV shows have a great relationship because, you know, so many of them are getting transformed into uh, movies. Not just the superhero stuff like like Avengers and such that everybody thinks of, but, you know, Cowboy vs. Aliens. Mm -hmm. And um, the publisher who founded that did Men in Black and um, The Crow and et cetera, et cetera. There's so many. No, um, I've never heard of them. <laughs> well, it's funny sometimes yeah, people don't know. There's an awful lot of crossover going on now. Um, and partly that's because producers, they want a property that they know has at least some kind of audience. They don't really care if it's a big audience. They just want to know if somebody paid to read this story. Yeah. And, um, you know, when they're looking at a graphic novel... An awful lot of story development, production development is already done for them. They, they can say, oh, you know, we got this look and we got this thing and we got to make these kind of visuals and costumes or sets. Um, so, you know, it's an advantage for them to have that shortcut. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah, I mean, the the optimist in me says it's so wonderful that, you know, graphic novels and comic books are are really getting their due, but then a part of me feels like these, uh, like the Hollywood, these producers, they're just being so lazy now. They're like, eh, is it already drawn up for us or not? (laughs) (laughs) I kind of, I want to be like, on the one hand, it's great for the graphic novelists and all that, but then again, it's kind of like, now we're just getting so lazy in Hollywood, we won't even look at original material that hasn't already been published somehow. Well, like I said, it goes back to the question of, is there an audience? Um, Which is actually the subtext for the producers 
you know, when the producer says, is there a book that I can look at, mm-hmm. is that's what's behind it is they want to know, is anybody going to be interested in this? Anybody yeah. at all? Um, because a lot of people making the money decisions aren't storytellers themselves. So they can only judge whether or not something has a audience if it does have an audience, yeah. <laughs> you know, they, they can't say, oh, I can see people getting on board with this original thing here because it's, un- it's fresh and unusual. Fresh and unusual is scary to them. <laughs> uh-huh. They want to see numbers. Yeah. <laughs> Hollywood adapted uh, novels for the longest time. Yeah. All of the hit movies are, are based on novels. Gone with the Wind, Wizard of Oz. Yeah. I didn't care for Gone with the Wind. I'm one of the few people who just, i that was such a chore. I mean, you get to intermission, it's like, oh, my God, it's only halfway done. <laughs> I'm actually not fond of it myself. Oh, thank but, you. Uh, I'm so glad. People just act like it's absolute heresy. I'm like, it's so long. And I really wanted to strangle Scarlet within 15 minutes. And that's being generous. Uh, yeah. I mean, she was so obnoxious. I cannot understand why anyone cared about her. Yes, she's pretty. So are a lot of women. She's really annoying. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Okay, sorry. (laughs) Sorry, I get us off track. (laughs) And it's great, you know, graphic novels and comic books, especially independent, they've really expanded beyond just superhero. There's all sorts of genres. Mm -hmm. uh, Oh, superheroes are doing well now. Yeah, superheroes are doing well. They're but, doing them better than ever, I think. I mean, <laughs> look at Walking Dead television. Oh, TV show. he just it says that because I don't like, like Walking Dead. Dead. <laughs> it's zombies. I don't like zombies. I like Walking Dead. Well, it's, you know, it, it's science fiction and period stuff as well. Rogue yeah. Perdition was a graphic novel. Yeah, and I bet a lot of people don't know that. Huh. So. You know, yeah, it's a great ground for other genres as well. Mm-hmm. See, see, he just likes to make fun of my phobias, so that's really <laughs> that's why he brings up Walking Dead. Unless it's Shaun of the Dead, she doesn't like zombies. Yeah, well, if I have nightmares, I'm I'm making you suffer. <laughs> <laughs> we really enjoyed your use of pictures and artwork in the book. And you had Professor Exposition. <laughs> yes. <laughs> How did you come up with him? Well, uh, when my editor made the suggestion of doing it in landscape and making it more graphic, was his words, Uh, because the book was originally intended to be, you know, your basic prose with occasional illustrations throughout. And he said, well, what if it's more graphic? And I'm going, great, I can't afford to hire an artist. I guess I have to do it myself. And (laughs) I actually do artwork, so it wasn't like, this was going to be traumatic or anything like that. It's just I'm not a consistent cartoonist. So that was the challenge. It's like, okay. Um, And as I started working, I realized the best way to make it more graphic was to have a character that did part of the explaining. Um, A friend of mine was looking through the book uh, recently, and, and he was going, Oh, he was like halfway through it. And going, oh, I I suddenly realized that all of these illustrations aren't things you can just skip past. They're part of the text. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Because the intention is 
to for people who aren't used to working in the medium, you know, they may have read comics, but they haven't worked in it, to have to read the the information in a comic book form, in the graphic form, helps them start thinking that way. Mm-hmm. You know, the combination of the expression of the character, what the character is saying, the layout on the page, all of those fun, all of those things started. I started going, oh, I can, I can be teaching them without telling them. You read the page across the top and then diagonally down and across and diagonally down and across. I can just lay it out that way and make them look at it that way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a good idea. It makes it more exciting than it makes. Yeah, it does. It walks yeah. you through it nicely. I love the name, you know, Professor Exposition. Cause, I mean, we love to joke about whenever you watch, like, Movies or TV shows that have really clumsy and awkward exposition, like, now we're going to yeah. be very obvious and we have to state things that we all know, but for some reason, someone is randomly saying it. And, you know, it's exposition yeah. on parade. And I love this. Okay, okay, here's some exposition. I'm calling him Professor Exposition. I can't make it any clearer for you people. This is what you're supposed to read. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And the name itself actually came from um, discussions that friends had on a message board that focused on CSI. And this is in the early years of the original series. And uh, we used to call Captain Bass Captain Exposition. Because because at the halfway point, you know, he has to recap where the story is so far. And it's usually Brass that got the job. And I thought, well, okay, we had Captain Exposition. I, I'll just call this one because he's teaching Professor Exposition. <laughs> I love it. And I I put in several images of him, and then I realized, oh, I'm. I got to the point where in Chapter Three, he's I'm describing out of frame work, and I say Captain Professor Exposition is always breaking the frame, mm-hmm. and I realized that nowhere before that point. Had I actually named him? Oh. And so I went back to his first appearance and I put the name tag on it. Oh, yeah, you have it on a shirt. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, well, you know, this is how graphic novels work. The exposition is in the image. <laughs> Very true, yes. He doesn't have to go, hello, my name is Professor Exposition, and I will be walking right. you through this book. <laughs> because everybody knows what those, you know, peel off labels look like so they know that's what it is and they yeah it just registers okay this guy's professor exposition <laughs> <laughs> i'm curious now you talk a little bit about uh like comicsology and, and digital comics um uh-huh. so I'm, I'm kind of curious what your opinion is on on the future of digital comics and how that's going to be either a good thing or a bad thing um you know i think there will always be a place for print mm-hmm. because we just like that the experience of turning that page, you know, the hidden suspense of what happens next. And you don't get quite that same feeling when you're looking at things digitally, like online or on a tablet. That said, I I think it's a great way of building an audience. Um, I mentioned in the book how Colleen Doran has built up her audience for, during a period when she actually had to take a hiatus from working on her um, own epic series. And she did that by having the material, the old material, 
on her website, digitally available. And she did very well by that. So she's finally able to finish off her epic now, mm-hmm. after, I don't know, what, 15 years or more? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it seems like a good option for independent creators because, I mean, there's already expenses. If they're not artists of getting mm-hmm. artists. And then you don't have to worry about the, the printing as much. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I like yeah. how, you know, you can approach it like like anything. It's a tool. You can you can use it to your advantage or not, you know. Yeah. And, and in fact, uh one of my short stories, I've actually been in the process of coloring because it was originally done in black and white. It's one I use in the book. I use some some of the panels from it in the book. And I thought, "Oh, I should have this on the website by the time the book comes out so people can actually read the thing. It's only eight pages. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, it's been a low-priority project, so I haven't finished the coloring yet. Um, but, yeah, I was, you know, it's like I said, it's eight pages. It's easy enough to put up my, on my website. It would be another thing for people to come look at. So digital has its points. Uh, mm-hmm. And comicsology they present traditionally laid out material um, digitally. You know, so basically, it's not quite exactly scans of books, mm-hmm. of print books, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, the, it's the print stuff. You can get a one-to-one correlation on that. Um, Thrillbent is a newer version of what digital comics can be, um, and they're doing some very exciting things. They're still focusing, but not trying to do motion comics in the sense of, you know, semi-animation sort of thing. Mm-hmm. They're still focusing on traditional panel art, but they're handling panels differently. And you have to explore their site to see some of their fascinating things. But they're still working. You know, it's still graphic storytelling that they're focusing on. Is there a comic book or graphic novel that's out right now? independent or not, that you think would make a really good movie that hasn't been turned into one yet? Oh, hmm. Um. <laughs> and please state the answer in a question form. No, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's kind of interesting because the one I would have pointed to before is actually now in development for television. Oh, oh really? what is uh, it? Powers, perhaps? Yeah, Chuck Dixon has... It was actually a very a three-part miniseries that he did years ago called Winter World about you know what it's about a society how society is working after everything's been frozen over. He doesn't bother to explain how this happened. It's just the way things are, and so the remnants of civilization are trying to survive. And uh, I thought you know this would actually make a pretty cool movie. Oh, bad pun, sorry. Pretty cool movie. <laughs> and um, recently, it, IDW started a production arm for IDW Entertainment, and they had reprinted Winter World a couple of years ago. And so they're developing it for television, and I forget how they're planning to distribute it. But oh, um, that's, that's coming up. That's cool. I haven't, I haven't heard of that one. It sounds like it'd be really cool. We just watched Snowpiercer. Yeah, I was just thinking of Snowpiercer the whole time you said you were talking about that. I'm like, we just saw that. Was it yesterday? 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, that was the one on top of my mind. You know, I've seen many others, but it, that would be great. It's a lot of exciting, creative stuff that done in graphic novels, comic books, where you're not limited yeah. by budgets as much. So. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Spectacular space opera or something like that. You know. Mm-hmm. No, now you're that. talking my language. <laughs> you're all drawn, you know, you're not paying CGI. <laughs> There's not a lot of good space opera shows right no, now. No, not right now. Yeah. And I'm I'm feeling the void here, you know. It it's painful. <laughs> all right, so I know our listeners are a smart bunch and <laughs> all three of them. No, I'm just kidding. No, uh... <laughs> Now, I know we have a lot of them who are creators themselves, whether they're writers or, or web series creators or whatever. Actors and, and artists and yeah. you name it. So um, just uh, I was wondering if you just give a tip, either a writing tip or or about writing graphic novels, either one. Uh, it could be in the book, could not be in the book, whichever, that you'd like to share with them. Um, <laughs> okay. This is, this is partly because the last month or so, couple of months I've actually been editing somebody somebody's novel and uh this is a screenwriter doing novels so there's some crossover problems it's like mm. you can write mise-en-scene and you're explaining everything but you can't do that in prose because that's telling people that's not showing them right so um you know everybody says show don't tell when you're dealing with exposition and a lot of people don't register how show works when you're telling a story. How do you get exposition in? And for something like prose, and, and it happens in other forms too, you know, somebody comes in and gives an encyclopedic explanation of, you know, the location or some tool or something like that. And it slows down the story. Mm-hmm. But if a character is engaged with it and we see it happening, the reader is being told, so-and-so runs out and this weapon is shot at the person and it has this effect. That's showing us. That's not telling us how the weapon operates. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that is that keeps the reader because it doesn't really matter which format you're telling it, that keeps the audience engaged because it's happening to somebody right. that we're connected to. Even if it's just in passing, it's somebody, another human being that we can engage with for a few moments. You know, nameless person runs out and is shot down. But we feel like nameless person. So, you know, it matters to us how that happened. Yeah. Do you think there's a lot of um, when going from uh, screenwriting to prose writing? Do you sometimes think there's a little bit of uh, kind of dumbing it down, not giving the the readers enough uh, credit for being able to understand what's going on sometimes, or because they're so um, used to having to show things in such a visual and be so straightforward, and then that sometimes they have a hard time. I'd imagine that would be difficult. I, I think actually the hardest thing for a screenwriter going to prose is remembering to set the stage. Oh, yeah. 
because, you know, when you're writing a screenplay, you write the description of the setting very briefly up front, and you don't go back to that ever again because you've already set the bedroom. You've already set. Right, and it's really the director and the art department and all of them are going to have to figure all that out. <laughs> right, but when you're re when you're writing in prose, um, you may have described the bedroom, you know, on page one at dawn or something like that. But later in the story, when somebody's coming home after a long day of work and they step into the bedroom again, it's a different place, and mm -hmm. so you've got to say. Oh yeah, she forgot to make her bed this morning in the dark, you know, the the comforter is all rumpled up and she forgot to wash the sheets. So does she want to take the sheets off and put new ones on or shall she just suffer with stinky sheets for another night? <laughs> or she left her so, sheets in the middle of the floor and she tripped on them coming in because, you know, exactly. the lights were so, off or something. Screenwriters forget those little bits of stage setting, um, unless, you know, tripping over the sheets in the dark is a cool, crucial plot point. Then they fall <laughs> on the body that's in the bed, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. You can tell the kinds um, of stories I read. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, you didn't say the body but, in the bed you know, was dead. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking hey, partially I'm, decomposed, but okay. No, we're not thinking I a zombie. <laughs> I write a lot of procedural stuff in history myself. So, you know, yeah, the brain goes there. <laughs> but, yeah, it, it's all of these little bits of scene setting and reaction that people need in prose that screenwriters don't put in a script, you know, because you're told not to direct the actors. Right. So it's like, well, just giving us the dialogue and not giving us the reactions in a prose text, it's like, well, how is the other person reacting to this? You know, are they frowning? Are they laughing at it? Are they paying any attention? Yeah, because you're not going to have an actor interpreting that for you at all. Exactly. So it's it's actually those things that are hardest for screenwriters to get when they turn pros. I can see how that would be a challenge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they always tell you in screenwriting not to over-describe stuff. I think that's probably the hardest thing going the other yeah. way would be you feel like, but I'm leaving out so much important information. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but you, yeah. Have to, you have to trust that everybody else on the project is going to do their job. You have to trust that the actor can handle fleshing out the character. You have to trust that the director can handle directing the actors and that the, uh, the art department can create it. And Yeah. Right, right. You can't be I too mean, much of a control freak. <laughs> I went from prose to screenwriting to comic scripting. So <laughs> my train has been very strange. I mean, I would overwrite descriptions for screenplays oh, because yeah. I was a novelist. <laughs> but you've got to know what it looks like. And it's like, no, no, no. Give them an idea of what the place is. I, I mean, I had one, descript, one script very early on where I went into great lengths about she had lots of plants, and her furniture was unusual, and all of these things, very detailed, and a mentor, you might say, said, this is way too much. Just say it's like a garden, like the art department. Sand, <laughs> because they're going to tell you, we have the budget for three plants, two yeah. of them fake, 
and we can get you some wicker chairs. <laughs> That's really all yeah, we can get. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> Other than that, unless you want to supply it yourself, you're on. You're out of luck. <laughs> well, for me, it was hard because I was coming to to it not just as a prose writer, but also as an artist. And yeah. so it's like, but I see it in my head. This is what I would draw. <laughs> No, yeah. you don't do that in the screenplay. <laughs> yeah, it's tough. It's a delicate, delicate balance. Yeah, it is. For the screenplay. And you have to give up some control that you don't have to usually give up, but control as an author. Yeah, control right. breaks need not apply. Which is, it, to, <laughs> it's like uh, varying degrees, because like, you got one extreme is author where you control everything pretty much. I like what, that. what the editor makes <laughs> and then yeah. And then the extreme of filmmaking, where there's so many... And just let people. it go. And then in between that is graphic novels where you have to work with... Yeah, you still uh, have to collaborate, you so you still have to kind of give some, but you... Yeah. And this is actually something that kind of freaks out screenwriters, is the amount of freedom they actually have with a comic script. Mm. Um, a few years ago, I was down at San Diego Comic Con, and J. Michael Straginski was um, talking about writing. He often does this, and he often leaves it as open question and answer. And one young woman, very earnest, stood up and asked, uh, she, she explained she was a screenwriter and trying to get into comic scripting and graphic novels. And she wanted to know about formatting for comic scripts because somebody had told her that like film, where there's a one page to one minute film correlation, um, there was a one-to-one correlation between the comic script and the final comic page. And um, I've seen Joe, <laughs> as he likes to be called, speak many times, and he is very quick-witted and, you know, responds fast. And it was the first time I'd ever seen him kind of like speechless for a moment um, because he didn't want... You know, when people are being smart, Alex, he'll give them a put down right away. But he knew she was earnest about being a good craftsman. <laughs> so he didn't want to do that to her. And it was just like, mm, it takes as long as it takes <laughs> for a comic description. You know, the description of what goes on a comic page takes as long as it takes <laughs> into for the artist to draw what you want. So there is not a one-to-one page correlation. No. <laughs> it upsets screenwriters. You know, what, what you, you, you mean I've got freedom? I, I can't <laughs> handle that. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. From what we understand of uh, Shazinski, that was that was a great deal of restraint on his part. But Marks and I are yeah. huge Babylon 5 fans. So like oh, you said his name, yeah. we both went... We like did a quiet yay over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I when I can, I always go to any panel he's on. When it, you know, if he's there for at some event that I'm at and it's he's available, I just it's fun to watch him talk. <laughs> <laughs> and with graphic novels, you know, that that could be one panel, one big panel, or it could be you know a dozen panels in there. So it could really there is a lot of freedom yeah. there. There is. It's one of the things I talk about, perhaps not enough in the book itself, but panel size helps convey the impact of a moment. Yeah. And you want to make your big pages 
you know, where you have a single panel on the whole page. You want them to be moments of really big impact, you know, if it's an epic moment or a huge emotional payoff. You want to give space to that moment because the reader feels that. When you make it a small panel and it's supposed to be a big reveal, you tend to undercut the effect of it. I once read a comic book where the writer had been building up to the reveal of a particular document. It was emotionally important to the character, Mm -hmm. and he gets it at the bottom of the right-hand page, and he opens, he's opening the envelope at that, in that last panel. You turn the page, and what you would expect would be the character's emotional reaction to the content. Oh, and but it was the writer the put in was the document. Oh. A full page of the document. We didn't get the character's reaction until the first panel of the next page. <laughs> and, it was panel, and it was like, no, 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 this is not right. <laughs> I want to see his reaction. I already know what's going to be in the document. You didn't have to give me a full page of the document. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I think that, you know, any artist, writers, prose or graphic, I think sometimes they get so uh, lost in the details of, of what they're, of the words that they're trying to use and what they're trying to say or the pictures they're trying to show. It's like they're afraid yeah. of the, they're afraid of the quiet. They just, the, your instinct is to just gloss over the quiet moments and the silence or the stillness and and to, you know hey, this is what it is see it's really cool you know <laughs> and and it's, yeah. it's kind of like when you're dancing it's you know don't be afraid to stop moving if you need to right in that moment because that'll emphasize the movement you know but right, right. yeah but it it takes some uh, it takes courage to kind of go for that stillness in in the well, art in this, in, in this particular case. Um, everybody who knew the title and the characters and and that particular writer knew the writer was invested emotionally in having this document happen, so to Uh, say. And and so the writer's investment in the issue overran the sensibility of what makes good storytelling. Mm -hmm. So the focus got put on the document instead of the character reaction. It's like, well, we know the document's important to you, but in terms of storytelling, we already know what it's going to say. Right. See, that's that's so what's the character's reaction. <laughs> yeah, it's the human element. That's why it's always good to have an editor who can go, yeah, see, no, this is what you need to do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or just some other third party going, yeah, no, I know what you're trying for, do this. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, when you go to working on something independently, that's the hard thing, is you're not working with a company editor who's Mm -hmm. keeping you on track. And so it's one thing I didn't actually go into in the book is finding the freelance editors who can help you with that sort of thing. There are some. Yeah. um, People who have worked for companies in the past that do freelance editing now, um, they're, they're there to be found. It's just most people don't think about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's yet another person to hire. <laughs> that's yeah. True. You know, that's, that's one that is usually ignored in, in independent comic books, I think. Cause there's well, always any a lot independent, of, self-published <clears throat> books, any kind of independent. Well, self-published novels need a, an editor. Yeah. So. I think everything needs a second pair of eyes. <laughs> For sure. But we need to start wrapping things up, I think. We've been talking for I a know, good amount of time. I know. You're so fun to talk to, Sarah. Yeah. <laughs> um, Thank you. 
Well, before we go... Let people know <laughs> when and where we can find your book. It's available on Amazon, and it should be in bookstores with film and entertainment writing, and hopefully lots of comic book shops will also be carrying it. Yeah, I hope so. I and imagine. It, and uh, Michael Weezy, usually they sell their books there too, right? MWP.com? Yes, they do. And... One more thing before we go. Is there any other projects you wanted to mention that you're either working on or, or have coming up that you like to, to promote? I am actually beginning work on another nonfiction book for writers about how to write a really good synopsis or treatment as a selling tool. Oh, that's oh. a good one. Yeah. I have heard lots, so many writers go, okay, the book is done, you know, and but the agent or the publisher or... The producer wants a synopsis, and I hate writing synopsis. How do I boil this down? I've already told the story. <laughs> so it's going to be addressing how to do that. Ooh, I'm totally going to get that. When are you going to write it? <laughs> <laughs> well, like I said, I am starting doing some work on it. I need to get interview some agents and editors about errors they see and that sort of thing and what they would prefer to see. <laughs> okay, no pressure, but just as soon as you can get that out, that would be great. <laughs> I, I I hope to get it done within the next year. <laughs> Woohoo! <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much for being yeah, on the show. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, this is Robert Grant, author of Writing the Science Fiction Film, and you're listening to Genre Tainment. Well, thanks to Sarah for speaking with us. Now, let's listen to some of those many interviews that Marks did at the Boston Comic Con. Hey, guys. This is Marks up here in Boston Comic Con again, and I'm joined by... Rich Daly. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what you have here at your booth today? Um, I have a lot of kid-friendly comics. I, right out of school, I had a deal, a freelance gig with a local author, and she hired me to illustrate her first book. And so I was doing that, and I since have got a graphic design job, but I've done a second, a sequel to her book, and I've done two of my own books. And, you know, that's kind of the past two or three years since I've left college. That's great. And so what's, uh, what's a good one here for people to start with, you think? Um, the, the biggest hit is Monster Mashup. It's a trace and create, build your own monster book. So I've, done, I've drawn body parts from heads, head shapes to eyes and ears, legs, noses, everything. And you just flip through the book, trace the parts you like, and then by the end of the book you have your own monster. And there's a website where you can post your monster to and add to the collection. Really cool. Sounds like a lot of fun. Um, and then I see here Muffy Mac Mouse and Christmas in the Village. So that's the sequel to the first book I did. Muffy Mac Mouse was the first book that I wrote with the local author, um, and it's really an homage to her family. And uh, you know, I book to teach kids how to care and share. And she wanted to do a sequel, so we did a Christmas edition. That was the sequel. And uh, where can people find you online? Um, PoorNightly.com. It's P-O-O-R-N-I-T-E-L-Y.com. It's my. It's the opposite of my name, Rich Daily Poor Nightly. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. All right, well, thank you. No problem, man. Thank you. My name is William Bark, and we're presenting Wild Bill Cartoons. And Mark Bodie, voice actor. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, your project? Uh, currently, there are sh- short animations between 30 seconds to a couple minutes long. It's just pretty much myself. I'll, I'll write the majority of the script, send it to my friend Mark. He'll read his, the script over with his voice acting talent, 
and I ask him to add his own insight on it too. It usually makes it funnier. And then edit it, show it to a couple coffee houses that show films, short films, and this is the first time at Comic Con. Yeah, I weaseled my way in. I said, man, your animation is great, it's sparkling, but you need some good acting and good audio to just make it punch people in the face. So I got in there and I said, what are you doing, you bloody lump? Why don't you get some real voiceovers in here? Ah. So, so tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, Drunk de Dumpty. Uh, he's just, um, just a miserable character, probably with uh, a bunch of people I've met through my working career. <laughs> so... Instead of being upset, I come up with some uh, stories and ideas and vent it out that way. And I laugh a lot while I'm working on it. Cool. And what about uh, your Wild Bill cartoons? That's the, that was the beginning. That's the, um, the company name. And at f- the first few cartoons, there's not too, much, um, it's not too much dialogue. And then when Mark came, on, came aboard and helped me out, he, we started, I started focusing on more script writing. And the next few cartoons coming up will be more characters added with different dialogue to add more of a um, more dimension to the animations. Great. If I can improv a script that he sends me and just make it outlandish and I can make a grown man giggle like a little girl, we figure it's funny enough to produce for the world. So where can people find you online? You can find wildbillcartoons.com, also on Facebook, YouTube. And Drunk D. Dumpty, Drunk, middle name D, D-E-E, Dumpty, on YouTube and Facebook. Great. Anything else you want to add? I want to say thank you for taking the time to chat with us. And I'll see you at the bottom of the barrel whiskey. Ah! <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. Hey, guys. This is Mark at Boston Comic Con, and I'm here with some pirates, actually. Uh, can you guys introduce yourselves? Uh, I'm Throg Mayhem Brewer. And, and I'm Grace Chief. That's mischief to you. So what's going on here? Who are you guys? We're part of the New England Brethren of Pirates. We're a group of misfits that like to tra- travel around causing trouble and chaos. <laughs> cool. And, and you guys have a kind of elaborate setup here, uh, and it has a fight, a pirate. So what, what's going on here? What's this, what's this about? I, we actually are a charitable donation-based organization. We pick an organization that we help raise money for at every event that we are at. And today we are raising money to help um, victims of domestic violence through a cause called Live for Live. Uh, you can choose to play with pirates by fighting them on the plank with a game of skill, or you can have a nice photo op in our beautiful hangabout back there. It's called a gibbet, but most people call it our cage. Or our babysitting service. We've also brought our mermaid along with us today. Yeah. Have a good time with them. Young ones tend to enjoy playing with Ariel. Great. Great. So how long has this organization been around? The organization's been in place since about 2010, I believe. We've had various members, various uh, different causes. We've donated to many different charities over the years. Are you guys based here in Boston, or you travel around? We're based out of Manchester, New Hampshire. Oh, okay. But we do travel quite far. All over New England. Okay, so that's your real accent. So okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great, that's awesome. So you travel pretty far then. We do. Aye, across the seven seas. <laughs> All right, well, where can people find I'm assuming you have an online presence, right? Yeah, we do. Can... You can visit us at nbpirates.com okay. at any time, and that links us to our Facebook and Twitter as well. The Book of Faces. 
All right, great. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Enjoy the con. Hey, guys, this is Marks again over here at Boston Comic Con. And now I'm with the 501st in Rebel Legion Garrisons. A lot of people have heard about you guys, um, and you guys have a neat little setup here. Can you explain what, what it is? Uh, yes, we have built a replica of the trash compactor from episode four. And we also have a backdrop for, uh, you could be an action figure. You can be mint on card in front of our action figure backdrop. <laughs> That's funny. What's, uh, are you charging for this? Uh, no, but we are collecting donations for, for the Shriners. It's the Shriners Hospitals for Children. Any, any donation is not required, but any donation is accepted for taking pictures, and all the proceeds go to the Shriners, uh, Shriners Hospital. Great. How long have you been with, uh, with the Five and First? Uh, since almost 10 years, coming in on 10 years. And in case someone isn't familiar with them, uh, can you just describe a little bit? Yep, it's a worldwide costuming group uh, for Star Wars. Uh, the Five and First is the bad guys, the Rebel Legion is the good guys. Uh, we're worldwide, and it's a 100% volunteer group that does charity throughout the entire world. See, I guess everybody likes the bad guys because I hear about the Five and First a lot. I don't hear well, about the we have cookies. You got cookies. Okay, yes. there you go. On the dark side, we've got cookies. <laughs> great. Uh, anything else you like that? Uh, no, it's just it's a great group. It's a great group of people. It's fun to be in it. Uh, it's, once again, volunteer. It's charity, and it's fun to dress up as your favorite action toy, action figure. And where can people find the Fiber and First online? Uh, 501st.com or 501neg.com for the local New England garrison. All right, thank you. Oh, uh, sorry, I always forget about the Rebel Legion. Uh, Rebel Legion is also... Forget about those rebels. Yes. <laughs> uh, Alderaan Base is the local one, alderaanbase.com, and the rebellegion.com is the worldwide one. Okay. All right, great. Thanks. Thank you. Hey guys, this is Marks over here at Boston Comic Con, and I am back again with Eden Park Tales, uh, Jason Moores, and Christy McDowell. So, can you guys uh, tell us a little bit about uh, about your stories and about what you guys do for it? Yeah, um, Eden Park Tales started about a year ago. We've been um, kind of tossing ideas back and forth. We're both very interested in fantasy and telling stories like that and finally one day um, I was editing his first book Illweed and we were like why don't we just work together and do some things um, so out of that was born uh, Autumn Gray which is kind of our flagship series um, about a small fictional town in New Hampshire where monsters and fairies go to hide and then what happens to the people as the magic starts to escape and that's been going really well. We've got four issues of that. So that went into the next project that we're doing, A Planet's Cry, um, which is an adventure series about the world's time period starting to blend together. So the planet pulls a team of heroes from all the different time periods to rally up and uh, save itself. So, so we have Illweed as a book. Yes. And then the, and everything else is comic books, right? Yes. Okay, so, um, so are you both artists? Or who does the right, who does the art? I'm sorry. Uh, uh, I am the artist, and Christy originally was my editor and then she kind of stepped into the writing role so she's the writer and I'm the artist. Well first off what's Illweed about? Well Illweed is a new fairy tale. I was down in Disney and I thought to myself they keep rehashing the same fairy tales over and over again why can't they just write another one and I thought why can't I just write another one so I just sat down and I wrote the story of uh, every royal family has the heroic prince well this is his brother this is the prince that's looked at as a useless villainous kid and it's the story of him cool and then uh, where did the ideas of autumn gray and and a plant's cry come from 
Oh, autumn Gray, um, something I've had sitting on my shelf for a long time. You just walk into the woods and, you know, you feel like there are creatures in, in the brush and things watching you. And I just kind of took that idea and thought, what if there are things out there? And then it just kind of developed into a, a narrative with somebody who's hunting them. And boom, the next thing you knew, we had a comic about it. What about a planet's cry? So Planet's Cry is kind of a uh, response. I mean, a lot of it is in response to, you know, global climate change and things along those lines. The planet is changing in a lot of ways really, really fast. And I had the idea for the book of where the planet's like, whoa, 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 you guys need to slow your roll a little bit. Things are starting to happen because of all the just overpopulation and the pollution and all the things that are going on in the world. Now this is the planet trying to kind of fix things and put things right and I thought that was really interesting to kind of take that idea and give it give it a voice that it doesn't currently have so is this like dark is it is it for children is it where's that um we kind of run the gamut age-wise illweed is definitely for um a younger audience probably at around a fifth grade reading level for reading alone but it's got short chapters lots of pictures it's kind of designed for bedtime reading like a fairy tale would be whereas autumn gray and a planet's cry are definitely teen plus um, in Autumn Gray, there are some characters that, you know, we don't pull our punches back as far as language is concerned. But that's not really the point of the story. It's just that there are certain characters that we didn't want to hide who they really are. Um, a Planet's Cry is about the same, um, not as much as far as language is concerned, but there's some violence. There's a big um, Viking battle towards the end of the book that we really got into. So, you know, that's would make it a little bit more mature, but only in the fact of, you know, graphic violence, not so much. Nothing you wouldn't see on TV before 8 o'clock anyway. Yeah, exactly. Oh, then that's safe. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, well, great. So you have a nice setup here. So and there's, like, paintings, too. So what kind of art do you, do you guys do? Well, um, I do a lot of work. I've done everything from portraits to murals. But a lot of the stuff we have here is illustrations from the books and other fantasy-themed artwork. A lot of the art itself, you can see um, we've got the painting back here, is actually the cover to Autumn Gray. We try to do a lot of uh, mixed media as far as, you know, not taking your typical, you know, pencil and ink style of drawing. We really try to do something a little bit different with each book. Great. And, and you both have pink ties. Yes. <laughs> Hashtag guys in pink ties. That's us. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So uh, where can everybody find you online? Uh, you can find us at www. Is that too many W's? www.edenparktales.com. All right, fantastic, guys. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, guys, it's Marks again here at Boston Comic Con. And now I'm joined with Michael Schwartz, author of Ratara, The Legend of Damien. All right, and can you tell us a little bit about uh, your books? It looks like you have two of them. Yeah, it's an uh, examination of religious extremism and gang violence turned into a superhero action miniseries trilogy. Uh, the story starts off as two boys who are slaves for this uh, group of thugs called the Khan. Uh, they make their escape on a stolen horse. They find themselves in the desert, and they're blessed by this unnamed divine being who equips them with some super capabilities so they can confront this group of bad guys who follow this creed called the Mari. Uh, so what these two heroes find out is that these bad guys are scouring the earth looking for these lost relics of this ancient uh, vanished civilization called the Yadenda. If they bring the lost relics back to the hidden capital city of Azandium, which is hidden in the jungle, 
and make what's called the reassembly in the Forbidden Chamber. They will be uh, fully imbued with the full power of the Mari. They will secure the victory of their deity, and they will be able to overthrow the old alliance on Earth. So the two heroes find out that they have to stop these guys from making this collection. Okay, great. And you may have said this before, but what kind of, like, genre? Is this like the future, like a post-apocalyptic, or is this a fantasy? It's a cross between uh, fantasy and adventure. Um, I would classify it more as adventure. It's more of a Batman and Robin meets Star Wars uh, meets Al-Qaeda with bits and pieces of Indiana Jones, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, kind of a blend of all that. So we have two books here, Rise of the Offspring and Feud of the of Planes. Feud of Planes, right. Book three will be out in December. The whole series is done. I'm not going to release book three until later this year. Uh, I did complete the whole series before I released anything. That way I would have the benefit of uh, retrospection. I would be able to go back and edit and, and put in what I wanted to in places throughout the book. So, yeah, I'm excited. You're great. Uh, where can people find you online? Yeah, you can find me on uh, online, ratara.com. It's R-A-T-R-R-A. Also, Facebook is ratara.bookseries. All right, well, great. Thanks a lot. Hey, thank you. Hey guys, this is Marks from uh, Genre Entertainment up here at Boston Comic Con, and I'm joined by Charles Paul Wilson III. So it looks like you've done some really great books with uh, with Joe Hill, especially. Uh, I've heard of him from Lock and Key. Can you tell us a little bit about the projects you've been working on? Um, well, I worked with him on a book called Wraith. It ties to his novel Nosferatu. It's about a um, a gentleman named Charlie Manks who kidnaps kids and takes them to a uh, amusement park of murder where they um, they catch people in there and they just put them on these torturous rides and stuff. Um, our story is about a group of inmates who uh, are prisoners who are being transported and they somehow end up in Christmas land uh, trying to survive and find their way uh, away from these kids. That sounds really good. Lighthearted stuff. Yes, absolutely. And if you love that, then you'll love our all-ages story. Uh, it's not with Joe Hill, but it's with uh, Third World Studios, Mike Rach, and Brian Smith. It's the stuff of legend. Uh, it's about a group of toys who go into another world to rescue their boy owner. And when they get to this other world, they all become real versions of themselves. And uh, the whole world is populated by all the toys that lived in that house that have become real. Sounds really good. Uh, is there any other projects you want to let us know about? Um, well, I've got another book out that's based, uh, it's coming out I, maybe in December called um, uh, Shadow Show by the Silver Water of Lake Champlain. That's based on a Joe Hill story uh, adapted by Jason Chiaramella, and uh, artwork is by myself and Jeremy Muller. And uh, that's from IDW. All right. And where can people find you? You can find me online, Charles Paul Wilson III in Google. Uh, you can find me through Facebook that way. Uh, Twitter is at CPWilsonIII. And uh, I have a DeviantArt account too, but I, I don't know offhand what it is. So just look for Charles Paul Wilson III DeviantArt. Great. Well, thank you. Sure. Thank you. Hi, I'm George Strayton, screenwriter of Hercules and Xena Warrior Princess, and you're listening to Genretainment. Well, I hope you enjoyed those little mini interviews. 
Now, if you heard something you might like, be sure to check them out online. And coming up soon in future episodes, we'll be speaking to Richard Dunn about his viral video that has over 20 million views. We will be chatting with podcaster and writer Mer Lafferty. She's been podcasting about writing since 2005 and is winner of the John W. Campbell Award. Her new book is the urban fantasy novel, The Shambling Guide to New York City. And in addition to that, very soon we'll be speaking with consultant and writer Lori Shear about her new book, The Writer's Advantage, a toolkit for mastering your genre. Now before we go, we want to remind you that you can keep track of us on our Genretainment Facebook page, Marx's Twitter account, which is at Mr. Marx, our website at genretainment.com, or all of the shows at scififulseradio.com. So that's it for today's Genretainment. We'll be back soon with all new guests from our favorite films, TV shows, novels, and web series. Genretainment is a production of Alien Jungle Bug Productions. Until Until next time. time! Bad monkey.